Good morning, everybody. Hey, we've got a binary day and month. It is the 10th of January, 2021, day four of the giant purge. And I do have a very good developing theory about ethics that I can't wait to share with you. I just can't wait to share with you, but I'm going to wait because I know we've got a bunch of callers this morning. So let's dive straight in, James. Thank you so much for uh, getting up at this hour of the AM, and let's dive straight into the listeners. All right. So the first question we have, it's a bit of a long question, but um, or a long intro, but I think, uh, as he was saying, is relevant. So here we go. Caller writes, I was born and grew up in eastern Ontario throughout the 90s and 2000s. I was very blessed in my early years to be cared, by, cared for by loving parents and receive the opportunities that I did. Too much of my time with, as a teenager was spent rebelling, playing in punk rock bands, chasing girls, and or selling various illegal substances. After working for Federal, federal Bank as a credit account manager for nearly five years following high school, I ventured further into the developing cannabis trade circa 2013. Initially, I assisted patients with acquiring licenses from various physicians, submitting paperwork, paperwork to Health Canada, and setting up and providing ongoing assistance with their personal production. I then moved on to working both licit and illicit cannabis production processing distribution operations. Just prior to the recreational legalization of cannabis in 2018, I sold everything I owned and ventured across the country without any particular destination to find both a new position in the cannabis trade and somewhere to feel genuinely at home. I decided on Alberta and raised over half a million dollars to fund the successful launch of a retail cannabis brand's flagship store. Eventually, I found myself shifted out of the operation in bad faith by several former business partners. Following years of mild success in my trade, I decided to pursue a train conductor position with CN Rail in the summer of 2019. My final interview was in Edmonton. I was in the train to Winnipeg for several months, then to be then, uh, sorry, and then be stationed in Jasper. During my final interview, I met a woman who changed my life. She was interviewing for the same position, and we eventually come to court through our, throughout our training in Winnipeg. As opposed to moving on to my terminal, I came back to Edmonton, where I had no car, job, or place to live, with the intention of pursuing my dreams of starting a family with her and making a proper return to the cannabis trade. Within a week, I found a deal on a used vehicle, rented a new apartment, and found a position helping build a licensed cannabis production processing facility. In her own words, it's not something that doesn't, it's not that something doesn't feel right. It's that I don't know if I can feel anymore. We were strained from taking the black pill too soon, having lived a life where your maturity and responsibilities are not reflective of your age, being torn between self and communal service in life, misplaced degenerative guilt uh, relative to our struggles with faith, and several further nuanced occurrences regarding our families. I kept trying to pretend like we could make things work through our, between our hectic schedules and eventually found us separated. I spiraled drinking again for a while. I do not remember the majority of March 2020 through May 2020. And then put myself back together with renewed, progressing goals. That led to her brief, yet extremely unplanned return that has since knocked me off kilter again as we went through this odd, it's still not time for us to be together, and I still don't know if we are supposed to be if this is really real experience before separating again. I've been very much alone since this past August. And while I am still in pursuit of my goals, life is now 
a struggle more than ever. I would appreciate the opportunity to discuss my experiences in an open forum with you so that myself and others might gain perspective as to the matters my life touches on. Well, that's quite a tale. And thank you so much for uh, for sharing it. Now, is there more that you want to add? I mean, I don't mind how long, uh, like how many details you want to get into is fine with me. Uh, the story sums a lot of it up. Uh, the only add-on I have is I had a car crash in October, uh, sustained a pretty bad concussion, and was found prematurely out of the job uh, that I had had built. So just been at home recovering ever since, uh, finishing up a university course, and just trying to build or plan or wonder, you know, what the hell am I doing? Right. And help me sort of understand, I didn't, you kind of went over, at least in the letter to me fairly quickly, the stuff that was going on with your girlfriend, wife, partner, I'm not sure what to refer to as. What was the arc of the relationship, if you could give me that in a bit more detail? Well, I met her chasing a job with CN Rail as a train conductor. And I wouldn't so much say we dated as... You know, I, I chased her sort of for a year. It was something. And um, it feels as though at the end of the year, us not being together, having any relationship, all the sacrifices I've made to try and pursue it, um, feels quite in vain. And I see these uh, incel characters taking quite a negative approach uh, as to everything. And I don't want to take that approach, but I don't, I, I'm quite frustrated. And a lot of the points that they touch on, it's tough because I find that there's not a grain of truth. There's actually a lot of truth. And as for my own guilt, I think, well, just not drinking, uh, exercising, going to school, just kind of developing on personal goals is better than the chaos in my 20s that I wish I had practiced a little sooner. But it doesn't really feel like there's much of a point to what I do nowadays. Um, I don't mean to sound like, oh, the one got away. But it really does feel like that. Um, and I just I just don't. I don't. Is this my fate? Is this a lot of men's fate? That degeneracy just catches up with you? And this is the best that you can make? just working and well hang on before we before we get abstract and don't don't get me wrong i do love myself sure. some abstractions but before we get abstract if you could tell me um how long you were together for what caused the breakup that kind of stuff sure um we were together for uh, about a, about a year in total um separated for about six months in between um I was I was with several other girls in between the breakup. Um, she was with one other one other guy. Uh, we reunited in the summer, and um, at the at the end of two months, we separated yet again. Uh, her words were, "When I'm with you, I feel like I'm slipping away from my goals in life because I get comfortable because I know you love and you accept me." And there was a part of me that had never seen somebody so much like myself. 
So say 90% and 10% different that I could love them for, you know, everything. And so my response was, Oh, I, I understand. I know what that's like. Um, if you have to keep working the rails or doing this or that, I accept you. And then we got in a bit of a heated fight at the end. Um, because her response was, well, that's that's what makes it more difficult. You just accept this. So I'm like, well, do I stand up and face the recourse of what I faced in my earlier 20s by trying to, you know, be mean, like thinking that's what it means to be a man? Am I paying the price of being too passive right now? And either way, I lost her. So. Sorry, to what now? You're the last one. Uh, being too passive. Like I didn't passive, know. Okay. Did she want me to stand up and put her in her place? Did she want me to respect her as an equal? I I don't even know anymore. Well, that's no way to run a relationship is trying to figure out what the other person wants and provide it to them. Um, That's fundamentally manipulative, right? Oh, if she wants me to do this, I'll do this. Or if she wants me to do the opposite of this, I'll do the opposite of this. But that's not then you're not there in a way. Your values, your presence, your personhood is not really there, if that makes sense. You could be yourself and see if people like it, not what do I have to adapt to in order to get someone to stay with me? Yeah. It feels like a conflict between wanting to be yourself and wanting to be the person that the person you care about cares about. Right, right. I mean, and, and you know, in general, in general, men trying to out-manipulate women is like me going up against Mike Tyson in his prime. Ain't, ain't gonna, ain't gonna play. Ain't gonna play. That's <laughs> you know one thing that a lot of women, not all, but a lot of women have down to a fine art. And uh, for men to try and step in and beat a woman at that game generally is not. Uh, it's like arm wrestling. Yeah, there's some. Women who can beat men, but in general, like you know how it goes, right? So let's talk a little bit about your childhood, because you know you talk about uh, you use the word degeneracy to refer to your youth, and uh, let's let, let's go back before that, before your teenage years, and what happened in your early life. Um. Well, what I would want to say is fairly normal. Um, my mom worked in finance. Um, my dad worked in finance as well it's where they met lived a fairly middle class life um for whatever reason i was the uncool kid in school i was i was picked on quite quite aggressively um when i was in second grade like it wasn't cooties it was germs so like myself um yeah if we could keep names off i'd appreciate that sorry um and um, that continued until my teenage years, where I started smoking cannabis. Um, and I became an access point just because of a bit of an entrepreneurial mind. So as opposed to being the kid who was bullied, I was the kid who was selling pot. So you became, I guess, not just popular, but popular, so to speak, right? <laughs> Yeah, for for lack of a better expression, I ran away from so home why, at the same um, time. Sorry, say again. Uh, I ran away from home when I was fourteen, um, and I rented a room uh, while working at uh, Domino's Pizza 
to try to go to as many of my high school classes as possible. Um, the conflicts that my parents had, it just seems so silly looking back, but it really did hinge on, I want to have a Mohawk and stay out late and have a girlfriend and just completely ridiculous. Like in hindsight, um, what's, what's ridiculous to help me understand what, what you mean or what you're applying that word to? Um, it, it seems ridiculous that I would sacrifice the comforts of a stable life for the nuance of like having a mohawk or needing to have a girlfriend. Like if I understood when I was a teenager, how important stability is so that I could develop and I, I, I don't I like your thoughts or just at least that's where I, mine are. Like it was a okay. So, decision. so hold up, hold up. Okay. So I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to bridge this gap here. N nothing negative on you. It's just, it's, it's my own failure. So hopefully you can be patient with me as I try and sort of navigate this, this tale, right? Which is, okay. So how do we go from a normal middle-class upbringing to Mohawk drug dealer moving out at the age of 14? Like that, there's something there that that's there's a, a zigzag or a jag in the course of life that I'm not sure I. I mean, I knew I knew a lot of kids who grew up in like when I was younger, and right? I, I knew a lot of kids my age who grew up in pretty stable middle class homes. Not one of them became drug dealers. Not one of them got a mohawk. Not one of them moved out at the age of fourteen. And I'm just, again, it may be my limited circle. It could be any number of things, but there's something here where I can't quite get the pattern. I agree. And a lot of the times people say, like, do you have, is there a trauma? Is there something particular, you know, you're not bringing up right away? And the answer is just no. Like, I was never molested. My father was always around and provided my mom was there like i i i can't particularly recall any instance aside from and i don't mean to like sound silly but just like watching punk rockers and wanting to emulate well i know lots of people see punk rockers though but i think you just told me what the issue is though okay i think you just told me so when my daughter gets older and somebody says what was it like when you were growing up if my daughter ever says something like well my father was around that's pretty heartbreaking do you know why no and you said this you said my father was around and provided and my mother was just around that, yeah. to me, spells three strangers living in a house with no connection, no closeness or intimacy, no unpacking of the heart, no guidance in life, no navigation of the challenges of society, you fending for yourself, you being bullied, parents not swooping in to intervene, to find out, to contact other parents, to move schools, to homeschools, to do whatever it takes to make sure the child is not being bullied. They're just around. Is it weird that I want to stand up for my parents and say like not I at all? And, and listen, if I if I if I'm off the mark, tell me. No, I mean, no, I'm, again, no. I'm trying to navigate here. So if I'm off the mark, tell me. It's perfectly natural that you would want to defend your parents. We all do, not your parents, but our own parents. You know what I mean? C certainly. Um, I don't think fully. I just 
I hid a lot of my problems from my parents. I recall being about, I think I was 10 or 11. I don't, and I was at karate, going to karate class. And I was like crying because I, that day or week was like really tough. And they were like, what's the matter? And I recall being like, I'm unpopular. I'm picked on. And, uh, but that was well, like years after I had already, you know, I had okay. So what happened? What happened when you told them you finally broke the biggest secret you had of, of the greatest unhappiness you were experiencing? And for years, what did they do? Um, they started to help with interactions, like with teachers and parents and principals and yeah, like in, engaging in conversations with bullies and. And did they help? feels like it helped it didn't i mean you can't stop kids from being kids you know nobody could have been there every second of every day that's my concern with these pink shirts is i feel that we're like not actually resolving the issue either in the bully who's bullying for a reason or the child who has to take something home regardless and so it would be nice to make that child stronger to be prepared for whatever might happen and for the bully... Well, I don't know, but the pink... Th it's a bullying thing in school, right? Pink shirt, solidarity for the victim. I mean, society is completely screwed up at the moment yeah. and is exploiting children in, in ways that Marx could never even have imagined, you know, dropping them into the world a million dollars in debt because of the greed of the boomers. And so the idea that society, which is allowing families to be shattered and children are still allowed to be hit in most countries and uses children as economic leverage to buy votes in the here and now and dumps them in terrible schools with propaganda teachers and indoctrinates them into going into massive debt in order to be indoctrinated into hating their society and uh, all, all of this crap and teaches them hedonism and the empty life of the pursuit of the dopamine in the here and now rather than the building of wisdom, virtue and family in the long term. And then with all these screwed up families and single moms and predatory child abuse and massive exploitation and indoctrination, we then go to kids and say, kids, you know, it's your fault that you're being bullied, man. You, you, you got to be nicer. It's like, nicer? What are you talking about? These schools are terrible. What are you talking about? We, we know we're in debt. We know that the government is borrowed in our name and our future financial future is completely screwed. So the idea that society, while pillaging children for the sake of hedonistic democracide, would sit there and nag children about being bullies. I mean, come on. It's, uh, it's, I mean, that's part of the abuse is putting the blame on kids. So how do we recover and not blame? Well, that I don't know. At least I don't want to get into it right now because I want to stay okay. focused on you and not, not okay. go into too many abstractions. I just wanted to sort of mention this, like children need to stop bullying. It's like, how about you stop bullying children, <laughs> exploiting children? But anyway, so, uh, for, for years, you were being bullied and you didn't tell your parents, right? Correct. So, fundamental question. There was a time before you were bullied, and then there was a time when you were being bullied, right? I mean, when you were a baby, you weren't in... Were you, your mom was stayed home, right? Uh, no, my mom, my mom did work. Oh, sorry. I'm, I remember she said she worked in finance. Did she stay home at all when you were younger? Uh, very, very briefly, just when I was when I was born and then kind of back to the workforce. Do you have any idea? Was it weeks, months? Um, would it would have been about a year after my birth? 
Oh, okay. Ed, sorry, who took care of you? Uh, my father. After your mom went back to work? Uh, my, my father and mother balanced responsibilities with the daycare. So do you remember anything about the daycare? Yeah, my first memory is actually the daycare, like just playing on the floor. Right. Right. Yeah, I have a memory of being in, I think it may have been kindergarten or something, and the chaos of my early family life is so mysterious in many ways because nobody's ever going to tell me the truth about it. But I was in some school, but it wasn't in my local neighborhood. It was uh, with my cousin and my around was sort of where one or more of my well, the one one of my aunts who lived in England it was I was actually quite far away from home and I don't know where my mother was she could have been back in hospital for depression I don't know but yeah I got those got those early memories I remember drawing airplanes you know the way kids draw airplanes they draw the fuselage like you're looking at it from the side and then they draw the wings going up from the bottom and down from the top, like it's some sort of swordfish. And uh, I remember looking at that and thinking, oh, that's not right. <laughs> that's not right. And, and working to fix it. And it's very little, but... So, I guess the big question for me is, how old were you when you finally told your parents after karate about being bullied or ostracized? I, I believe I would have been somewhere between 10 and 12, say, say 11. Okay, so let's say the bullying had gone on since when? When? How long had it gone on for? Do you think? Uh, it's hard since, to pinpoint. But. Since uh, no, about about grade one, I recall like a particular school being of issue, and kindergarten, like having been in some enrollment before, w wasn't much of an issue. You know, it's just go to kindergarten. So four, four to ten, four to twelve, that kind of thing. Um. Yeah. Years total. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, I think I can tell you why you didn't tell them. Now, you put the onus on yourself and you say, well, gosh, if I had told my parents earlier, then things would have been dealt with sooner and, and things would have been better. And it's a way of putting the onus on yourself or the blame on yourself and excusing your parents. But, why, did you know why you didn't tell your parents? No, no, I am, I am very curious and all ears. Yeah, no, I, I can tell you why, in my opinion, you didn't tell your parents. You didn't tell your parents because it's their job to know. And if they didn't even know you enough to know that your mood had changed, that you weren't as happy, that you weren't as content, that you weren't as... full of pep... If they couldn't tell that you were isolated or bullied or ostracized or ignored or rejected. I mean, it's the parent's job to know, right? It's the parent's job to know. It's the parent's job to know. You don't, you don't just abandon your kids to their state-sanctioned relationships and, you know, just, just assume everything is fine. I know every one of my daughter's friends. I know the status of every one of their relationships. We talk about it quite a bit. It's your job to know as a parent how your kid is doing. You don't just dump him in a daycare or dump him in a school and just say, well, I'm sure everything's fine. And, and you know, if there's a problem, I'm sure that the five-year-old 
will have the maturity to come and discuss it to me in an open and reasonable fashion. That's not, that's not how parenting it works. That's not how it's even remotely supposed to work. It's your job as a parent to monitor the quality of your children's relationships to make sure there's no exploitation or bullying. Or, I mean, that's your job. So you didn't tell your parents. And, and, and you know, they could have asked. Even if they didn't figure it out, which they should, right? If your parents can't figure you out, I mean, good Lord, right? I mean, they, they, they gave birth to you. You're half, half the half genetically. If your parents can't figure you out, or can't even figure out that you're unhappy. What on earth are you supposed to do with it? <laughs> right? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Steph. Pardon. No, but you get it, right? The absurdity of the yes. situation. It's yes. not your job to tell your parents how you feel. Yes. I mean, yeah. imagine imagine you are, you know, we're, we're buddies, and you come to ask me to help you move, and I come to help you move, and I show up, and you're carrying a big, giant, bulky death-heavy fridge down a flight of stairs. And I come up the stairs, and I'm like, hey, man, how's it going? Doesn't seem very helpful. Well, I'm ignoring the fact that you're carrying this big, giant load. That's going to be weird to you, right? Like, first thing I would do, I see you coming down. It's like, dude, let me help. Oh, my God, what are you doing? You should have waited. Uh, let me help, right? Because I can see you carrying this big, giant load. So the first thing I should do is leap up and help you, not walk up and just say, hey, like, you're not even carrying a load. Like, we're just chilling, right? Your parents see you carrying this load. And they're not, they don't notice the load. They don't rush in to help. They don't ask you what's going on. They don't sit there and probe to figure out where the unhappiness is from. They don't even seem to notice that you're unhappy. It's, it's their job to know, if that makes sense. It's their job to know. You know this is out there to all the parents. If you're going to dump your kids into relationships run by other people, i.e. the state, for God's sakes, follow up, figure out talk about it ask questions it's really 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 important and and notice if your child's mood changes for heaven's sakes notice if your child's mood changes notice if your child is unhappy for god's sakes um it's it's their job my my parents provided well like i never wanted for food or anything like that but at times i would be spoiled with like a lot of children of the nineties and two thousands, like video games. And I sure. am, try I'm trying to think, I think there's something to that in a sense that like that gave me like a physical object. So my parents were like, Oh, he, something's up. He doesn't seem that cheery or whatever. Whoa. He needs the latest video game or whatnot. And then like, I'd have this material thing and I'd be like, Oh yeah, cool. Awesome. And I would be kind of out of a funk if I was bullied but then sure. I would be alone, like even more so because I'm just like playing this game on my own. And I see it as my parents thinking like, oh, well, our job's done. Like he's happy. Yeah, everything's good here. And it's kind of like, I don't know if it made the situation better or worse. I, oh, I worse. Yeah, no, without a doubt. I mean, because your parents are basically saying, here's something that you can go away with. Here's something you can not chat with us with. Here's something to keep you busy. 
because we don't enjoy your company. That would be my interpretation. I don't know if it's a fact or not. Yeah, and the thing is, but, too, because you're, you're unhappy because you're in coercive relationships, your parents buy you violent video games. And it's like, hmm, I don't know that that's really the solution to a lack of human connection is going <laughs> and shooting people on a screen. <laughs> I was into racing games, but I hear you. Yes. Well, even that, it's grim competition, win or lose, against either, I guess this would be before all the multiplayer games, but yeah, you're playing against a robot and it's win or lose. There's no negotiation. There's no intimacy. There's no chat. There's no connection. There's no love. Hmm. It's just a grinding mechanical Olympics of dissociation. And you're searching for the dopamine hit of winning and avoiding the crash of losing. And you're on your own again. So if your parents sensed that you were unhappy, the first thing that to do is not to give you a drug, right? You understand that the video game is a drug, that your parents, in a sense, were drug dealers, and then you became a drug dealer. It's not too shocking, right? Mm. Oh, unhappy? Yeah, take this piece of technology, and, and, and you'll be happy again. And, oh, you're unhappy? Oh, here, have some marijuana. You'll be, you'll be fine again, right? But So they knew that you were unhappy, and rather than trying to figure out why you were unhappy, they which was, in fact, isolation, they gave you an isolating device called a video game console, which made the problem worse. Oh, isolated? Let me give you something that's going to have you locked in your room day and night. That'll solve it. And it's so passive. It makes you feel as if things are a lot better than they are. Of course, yeah. Of course. And what children want is contact. What children want is for people to be curious about them, to speak their minds, to be understood, to be loved, to be appreciated, and for, people, for people's faces to light up when they walk into the room. I mean, that's what we all want to some degree or another, right? We want people... To light up with joy when we come in the room. And if you come into the room and your parents joy, your parents' faces light up with joy, and they pepper you with questions and ask you how you're doing, racing against dead pixel robots won't count for much, won't be that inviting. You know, my, my daughter and I will sometimes do a dance when we see each other. The happy dance. We haven't seen each other for an hour or two. And why not? Don't you want that? Don't you want people to take joy in your presence? Don't you want them to appreciate and love the fact that you're there? No. But your parents giving you the go-away. You know, it's a go-away box, right? A video game console is a go-away box. It's a rejection box. Now, this, I'm not trying to say all parents who buy their kids video games are telling them to go away. I mean, I'm not, but in this particular case, they, in my view, and I'm not saying consciously, but I think that the effect was they kind of drugged you and said, well, if you're going to be alone, at least you can get a high score. 
I wonder if they were trying to buy time to figure things out or if it was the nuance of being a parent. I don't know. Listen, it's uh, it's tough. You know, if you if your kids are unhappy because of the it's not just your parents, right? And and they're they're kind of cogs in a machine just like all of us or most of us are, right? So it's not just your parents, right? I mean, the system is very child hostile. Our our current system is very child hostile. And you know, we we've we've socialized or made tyrannical our children's existence, which is why tyranny keeps growing, right? The the whisper campaign to get people kicked off social media is no different from the whisper campaign to get kids ostracized in schools. I mean, if you are a social media giant, you can spend, I don't know, a couple of thousand bucks for some bots to start putting horrible things on your competitor sites. And then you take screenshots of these horrible things. I don't know if this is what occurs, but it could be. You take screenshots of these horrible things. And then you run to your good buddies in the media and you say, oh my gosh, can you believe what's being posted on these sites that are directly competitive to me? And you don't you know, necessarily go as yourself. You'll have someone go. And then uh, so the media will work very hard to get you banned. And uh, then your competition has dropped out. And then other people don't want to come into that space to compete with you and it's a pretty pretty unholy situation as a whole. But, uh, yeah, this is ostracism. All of the dysfunctions that we see being played out in society at the moment are... They, they have the roots in a system. And so with your parents, right, so you're unhappy. Now, if they genuinely start to ask and inquire as to why you're unhappy, then they're going to have to question a whole bunch of things which are really challenging to question, right? So they're going to have to sit there and say, mm, well, he's not happy in school. I don't want to blame my child. Maybe there's something wrong with school. And then they'll mull it over and they'll say, well, if the government chose my friends randomly, like let's say your family wants to go on vacation. If there was a government program that said, okay, you go on a vacation for two weeks, we're going to choose 10 random people from the neighborhood to go on vacation with you. And say, well, that's what? That's not good. I, I don't I don't want to do that. I mean, maybe we'll get along, but odds are we won't have anything in common or we might have completely opposite values or they, they may not even speak the same language, you know? I mean, the thanks, right? But that's... So if, if you had a something for adults where the government chose who you hung out with, who your, quote, companions for or the people in your proximity, if the government assigned your parents to live in a house, a giant house with 30 other people and chose those other people randomly, I mean, what are the, what are the odds that anybody would get along in a consistent way? But that's what we do with kids, right? We just say, oh, you've got to go to the school with all these people just from the neighborhood and good luck. You don't get to choose your companions. You don't get to choose your friends, really. I mean, you, you can choose your friends in a way, but it's such a messed up environment that when you pair off with people, other people are going to get upset and Right, so the dysfunctions in society as a whole that we see, uh, they, they, to me, a lot of them come out of just the terrible ways in which we treat children. You say, ah, well, you've got to respect the Constitution. And respect the Constitution, okay. What's more important to a child, the Constitution or marriage vows? 
I mean, we've said to people, you can just break your marriage vows. Don't even need a reason. Don't even need a reason. It's like uh, if, if you had an electronic store, you could, you could buy a tablet and you could toss it around, you could crack the screen, and then two years later you could return it and get paid to return it. How well would people take care of their tablets? Well, not very well at all. When you can not just turn in your marriage for a refund, but also get paid to do it, particularly if you're a woman, how well are you going to treat the marriage vows? And so many kids have gone through, I know it's not you, you, I assume your parents are still together, but so many kids have gone through these breakups in the marriage. And then they say, well, you know, we've, we've got to respect these laws, we've got to respect these rules, we've got to respect this constitution. We're a society of laws, not of men. Okay, well, as a kid, if your parents don't respect their marriage vows, right, your, your, kid, your parents make a solemn vow to, to get together and to stay together and to work it out, and we see them so often acting like spoilt children without any excuse for being children, because they're not, and they just tear up their contracts, destroy the marriage, destroy the family. And then what they do, of course, is they say to their children, well, you, 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 you've got to respect. There's a social contract. You've got to respect the rules, man. You've got to respect the rules. And, oh, my son, my daughter, you've got you to keep your word. You've got to keep your promises. You can't promise something and then just break it. You can't break your word. You can't lie. You can't just say you're going to do something. What is it that, that parents say to teenagers all the time? They say, don't tell me you're going to do it later because you never do it later. Don't promise me something just to get me off your back in the moment, which you have no intention of fulfilling in the long run. To which the teenager can rightly say to his parents, if they're divorced, what, like you mean, like your marriage vows? You just say something to get what you want in the moment with no intention of following through in the long run? What's more important, me taking out the garbage or us having a functional, intact family? Hmm? But everybody wants this void, this oppositional matrix where there are really solid rules that are imbued with honor and respect and dignity and virtue, which everyone else has to obey, has to respect, has to respect these rules. But then when it comes to their own rules, their own solemn vows to stay together as a family, to love, to honor, to obey, in sickness and in health, in better and in worse, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. It's a pretty solemn vow, man. That's the foundation of new life. And then, you know, if it doesn't work out, okay, we're just getting divorced. Um, sorry, kids, just getting divorced. We're consciously uncoupling. We're still good friends, but, you know, we just, we want other things. But if you make a promise to your parents and then you break that promise, you're a bad guy, even though your parents made an infinitely more solemn promise to each other and then broke it. Uh, my mom and dad are still together. Um, okay. I, I think they set a good example. Um, I wanted to get married. I got a ring this time around and was w trying to meet the dad and do things right. But I don't. That, that's why I'm kind of like, did degeneracy just catch up with me? And I was like, well, no, no. See, hang. We're still sorry for that sidebar there, sorry, but we're still sorry. trying to sort of examine the. No, it's fine. Still trying to examine the roots uh, of of this. So, the punk movement, right? Sure. The punk movement arose out of a profound 
nihilism and hostility to existing society. The punk movement arose in conjunction with two other big elements or movements within society. The first was the threat of nuclear war, and the second was the threat of environmental destruction. And those two threads within society produced a profound nihilism and hostility and hatred of the existing system. Like, how on earth could adult society be so structured? Well, and, and divorce, right? It, it, the punk movement arose in the 70s in particular. You had divorce, you had nuclear war, imminent, imminent. There was this bulletin of the atomic scientists. It, had, it was a magazine, I think. And it had a, you know, we're two minutes to midnight, midnight being nuclear war. Like, there was this sword of Damocles, this, this destruction hanging over everyone's head. And then you had a bunch of movies uh, the day after and threads and so on many of which were funded by Soviet communists to demoralize the West. And so there was a sense of no future, and if you thought it wasn't going to be nuclear war, then there was global cooling, global warming, acid rain, ozone layers, you name it, right? It's just going to be, I mean, the, the precursors to the modern climate change stuff. And so you got massive divorces, people aren't keeping their words, nuclear war, environmental destruction, and this is all you know, put in largely by hard leftists to demoralize people and turn them against their own society, and the punks were like, yeah, I'll go with that. The Mohawk was a sign of conformity to leftist propaganda, that your society sucks, and uh, tear, tear it all down, and uh, live, live for the moment, and the excessive piercings, the, the Mohawks, the the whole look was a big advertisement to say, I don't believe in a future. <laughs> right? I, and and I, you were told no. that. You were told that over and over. There's not going to be a future. Just like kids I, are being told now, there's not going to be a future. And that's what makes you go are selected and hedonistic and, as you say, degenerate. Sorry, go ahead. I don't know if I'm virtue signaling or anything, and I don't want to get too specific with places, but I, I grew up near and around a native reserve. So I was the token white kid. My friends were just natives. And growing up around native culture, seeing guys with Mohawks, uh, warriors of the community and whatnot, they were just like the older men who kind of said, oh, well, they're cool with their ATVs and they're, they're nice members. At least I saw more of them being nicer help members of the community. And what it was to symbolize was, oh, hey, I have like that haircut meant, hey, you, I'm someone in the community. You can ask for help. You can be, you can befriend. Um, so there's a part of me, I think, in some greater good that was like that combined with the punk rock. Oh, we're like outsiders who help each other or whatnot. I, I, I'm, I'm not saying that is totally valid, but I just I don't know if I had a mishmash of one culture over the other or just a bunch of what I was seeing that was promoting a way of life that was like be you and accept others just try to be better and but maybe that's not what it meant like it so you grew up as a minority right ethnic minority yeah my family's been in canada for eight generations so i'm mixed i'm a little bit of everything i just don't care for all no no but i mean with regards to your school right if you were were whites a minority relative to the uh, aboriginal population um 
No, it's it. We're probably the majority, but not by much. Probably about sixty forty in the area that I'm in. Or was it? And what was the perspective of the Aboriginal population on white European culture? Um, about sixty to seventy percent were quote unquote over it and assimilating while maintaining some uh, sense of their history and cultural identity. Um, the other thirty percent were promoting, you know white guilt and, and we're owed more money and uh, just propelling racial tensions. and Right, right. And what were the relations, if they could be characterized that way collectively, between the two groups, the whites and the aboriginals? Uh, well, in what I saw, which was kind of just a music community, not to downplay it, was people didn't care. People cared about... What sort of music do you like? What the, do you like hockey or basketball? Do you, you know, we never cared about skin color. I grew up. I, I don't. I don't know. It's. I just don't care. I don't understand why the world cares so much. I care about what's your hockey. You like hockey. You like basketball. You like punk rock. You like metal. You like. Either way, man, I just want to be your friend. Like, and I don't know that. I guess went to the wayside. Well. Let me ask you this. What was your perspective, or at the time, were a, a number of the kids who went to your school, did, did they, you said they lived on reservations, right? Um, yeah, well, there was a, it was a town of about 40,000, about six schools, and kids all over. So, like, some, go, some of the richer reserve kids go to the richer schools. Some of the poor reserve kids go to the poor schools. The poor... I certainly don't have your expertise with regards to in the indigenous population in Canada, but I've worked with them uh, and I've certainly visited some reservations and it's it's fairly Gee. hellish, right? Oh, it's the shack stuff. Uh, it's the substance abuse. It's the child abandonment. It's the child oh. abuse. It's the disintegration of any culture or family structure. I mean, yeah. I, I was working in a town up north. I would come out of the bar at, uh, you know, one thirty in the morning. And there would be uh, kids with no no pants running around the street, like from from the natives, like little kids, like four year olds, five year olds, six year olds, just running around. Yeah, the streets. They didn't have any pants on. And I, I mean, I've mentioned this story before that I was driving back from the town, tiny tiny little town, to our camp, uh, you know, which was off the road a, a ways. I was driving back. From town uh, at night, not too late, maybe 11 o'clock. And uh, there's this woman staggering along the side of the road. And uh, I stopped my truck uh, and, of course, uh, asked if she was okay. This is middle of nowhere, right? And uh, she was a Native woman, and it turns out that she'd been in the back of a pickup truck with four Native men. And they had demanded oral sex from her. She had refused, and they had barely slowed down the truck before throwing her out of the vehicle. Now, that's not all, obviously, right? This was a... But, you know, this is the stuff that I have seen. So, of course, I I took her to... I drove quite a ways to, to hospital, and, and she told me the tales of, of her life, of her situation. And again, anecdote is not data, but... I did see some pretty grim stuff 
working up in and around these uh, these environments. And then there were also some sort of stalwart, upright people working for honor, hardworking people that, that I worked with. Um, but uh, there was a lot of despair, a lot of substance abuse, a lot of child abuse and abandonment and neglect. And uh, it was it was kind of rough. Now, again, this is not... This is pr- pretty far off the beaten path, so it may not have been your experience, but that's the stuff that I'd seen. I, I guess I was fortunate to be in an area where it was lesser, but I am privy to seeing those things firsthand. God bless the people in the reserve who are aware of their tribe's problems and trying to fix it. I think they need help of settlers to call out the shitty people, pardon, the bad people in their tribe um, causing issues because they're they're trying Um yeah, there are issues. Well, I mean, this is where the government controls just about everything, right? And uh, this is the result. I mean, if there's if 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 people want to see socialism, just look at the reserves, right? And uh, that's that's the result. That's what people that's what people want. That's what people want. They think it's going to solve the problems in life because you know we all want a cessation of struggle, of strife, of conflict. And if we get that, then we become like astronauts losing bone mass in space because there's no resistance. We, we need, I mean, we need struggle. We need strife. We need conflict in a way. Uh, now, it should be, of course, struggle to improve yourself, struggle to surmount your own former self. It should be all that kind of stuff. But um, in a free and peaceful society, we would then be struggling to uh, get to Mars or Jupiter or invent jetpacks. <laughs> you know, that would be our struggle. But right now, it's more conflict-based. All right. So... When your parents, if they start to ask why you're unhappy and they keep drilling down into why you're unhappy, at some point they're going to break through the crust of the social earth around them and then they're going to start to see that, uh, well, why are you unhappy? Well, I'm in a school. Why are you unhappy in a school? Well, because I'm being bullied or ostracized or made fun of or ignored or whatever. And they'll, they'll work to try and give you some social skills and whatever it is, right? And, and they did try to do that, but it didn't work, right? Because you said you were like 12 when your parents really started to intervene. But then two weeks later, sorry, two years later, you'd moved out of your house and, and you were living on your own, right? Correct. So it didn't, it didn't work, right? So when parents, if you sit there, and this is why society doesn't like to do this at all. You sit there with your kids, you say, okay, well, why are you unhappy? Why are you unhappy? It's like, because it's like asking, it's like asking a cow that's in a tiny stall with no sunlight, no grass, no fresh air, no capacity to mate or raise its own offspring. You're asking that cow, if you could speak cow, say, why are you unhappy? And the cow's going to say, because I'm in a stall. Because I'm being fed disgusting stuff. Because I'm being kept in a constant state of pregnancy so I can produce milk. Because I have no freedom, no fresh air, no healthy food, no mate, no family. I'm a meat machine of milk and murder. What are you going to say? Well, you know, I'm going to give you some tips on how to adjust to this situation. (laughs) The cow's going to say, A, I can't, and B, I don't want to adjust. I want the situation to change. So... If there's some animal going crazy in a zoo, I mean, zoos are more humane now, but back in the day, right? Or some bear in some crazy-ass Russian circus that dances and is whipped and starved, and right? When you say to the bear or you say to the animal in the zoo, 
why are you unhappy? I said, well, I'm not in my natural element. I'm controlled, I'm caged, I'm exploited. I'm kept from all the natural cycles of life that bring me any kind of meaningful happiness. They say, well, let me adjust, let me help you adjust. I'm going to give you some tips and tricks on how to adjust. It's like, so when parents start to ask, or when society as a whole starts to ask why the children are unhappy, if society really starts to listen as to why children are unhappy, well, society's going to have to make some pretty big changes that's going to put it in significant conflict with some pretty powerful forces, like the teachers' union or the state as a whole, the educational system as a whole, or the easy divorce and paid-to-get-divorced system as a whole. So society doesn't really like, and your parents, this is why I say it's not just your parents, it's a whole machine, there's a whole machinery here where people are like, I don't want to ask, I don't want to know. Because if we choose a society, like if we genuinely start to ask why are children unhappy, we say, well, they're, they're in zoos. Why do we put animals in zoos? For profit? So that we can charge people to come and look at the animals in a cage? Well, why do we put children in government schools? Well, for the profit of the teachers and the teachers' unions and the leftist politicians that the teachers' unions support? It's a, it's a profit. It's a, it's a human zoo. Well, why, why are these children unhappy in a zoo? Well, why are animals unhappy in a zoo? Because they're in a zoo. And telling them to adjust to being in a zoo, and it's their fault they're unhappy, and all we need is a couple of tweaks, it comes out of the fact that the system is pretty horrific, and nobody knows really how to change it. And changing it would be brutal. Even trying to change it would be brutal. Do you not think there so, are some opportunities? Uh, so I just, I'm sorry, I just want to say that with some sympathy to your parents, like trying to plumb the depths of why you're unhappy would uh, would be pretty blackpilling for them. Sorry, go ahead. Um, I didn't want to divert away from this, but just like, do you think with coronavirus and kids staying at home to study that like maybe there are some optimistic opportunities with where we're at and where we were and problems and potential solutions? Well, you know, anything that disrupts an existing system creates a fork in the road, right? It creates the opportunity for growth, but it also creates the opportunity for backlash. Mm. And the fact that, you know, I mean, there's there's publications, even here in Canada, that are bemoaning the fact that women seem to be enjoying staying home with their kids. <laughs> well, we, we can't let that happen. we we, we, we got to propagandize these people out into the workforce again. Got to tell these women that, that they can't be dependent financially on a man. They got to go out there and be a successful. And I mean, it's so easy to train people. It's so ridiculously easy to train people. All you do is is you just run a bunch of articles and ads and so on with some slender, beautiful woman power walking her way to a meeting, and women are like, "Yeah, I'll ban- I'll abandon my kids for that." My mother did tell me, not in a concession way. But she did say, I wish I had a stayed home and had more kids. And I wish she would tell that story to younger women as opposed to, <laughs> I appreciate it. Like, yeah, well, if she tries, she's going to get attacked pretty hard, right? Yeah. I mean, try try being a philosopher, reminding women of the basic facts about fertility. <laughs> it's one of the things that will get you kicked off social media. Can't have that. Can't have women being reminded of their fertility window. That's no good. Can't be doing that. 
That that might mean that smart people make plans and have more kids. Ooh, bad, 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 right? Now, does she know why? Oh, did she say why she chose to... I mean, I hate to put this indelicately, but it's kind of true. Dumpy and daycare so she could go back to work? No. I don't... I, I don't know if it was just like finances like I, I i don't really know what our finances, no, it's not ever finances. Were. no 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 it's not finances no 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 because when you figure out the cost of daycare and the additional expense of needing a second car of lunches out of dry cleaning of clothing of like when you actually do the math women are working for at best a couple bucks an hour for the most part i mean there could be some you know, neurosurgeon or something like that, right? But it's it's not finances. I mean, especially you live in a small town. You just move to a smaller place. Right? And is it just you? You just you? Yeah, it kids? is. I'm only only child. We had just moved from like a million person city to like a fifty thousand person city. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. So it's it's not. It's almost never money. And see, here's the thing too. If the woman makes a, a fortune, right? It makes, I don't know, $200,000 a year. Okay, say, okay, well, then there's an economic case for her working. But then she's almost always married a guy who makes more because of hypergamy, right? She's not married a guy who's unemployed. I thought I always hated capitalism in a stupid punk rock misguided sense because it was like that was the system that tricked my parents into like, you need to get the next car. You need to have a vacation. You need to do this and that. So my mom's thinking like, oh, got to go to work. Got to do this. Okay. Hubby's got to do this. Okay. We'll put this little one in daycare and we'll keep this up and get a few more dollars for the, and um, then in the interim, my happiness is, and so I don't know if that's like me being like, oh, I got to rebel against the system. Or, uh, oh no. Listen, business stole your mom from you. That's your kid's perspective. My mom is choosing dollars over me. Mm-hmm. And therefore, dollars, trade, the market, that's that's the scapegoat, right? Is it? I don't know. A lot of the time I... No, it's I a say... scapegoat. It doesn't mean it's real. I mean, it, it. but it certainly, like, from a child's perspective, mommy has to go to work means that work is more important than the child, right? Than, than the child. Now, I mean, I think you can say... Uh, mommy needs to go to work because otherwise we're going to be living in a box on the street or whatever, right? But that's not almost never the case, right? So mm. if people's lives are that disorganized, they're usually on welfare anyway. But so, yeah, so when mommy says, I have to go to, I'm going to work, then yeah, it's dollars, it's materialism, it's corporatism, it's capitalism, as it's called. Like, well, yeah, why, why do I've said this before? Like, why do people hate capitalism so much these days? Because the market stole mommy. And it's a way of it's a way of taking the blame from an individual and putting it on an abstract system, which is much more palatable emotionally, right? It wasn't okay. mommy's fault; it was the propaganda. Now, I think you can I think you can reasonably hold both the system and the individuals responsible. You can't just say it's an entire system and the individuals aren't responsible because that's pure determinism, and then nobody's responsible because everything's mechanicus is a mechanical robot set of dominoes. I don't think you can say just individuals are responsible because they do live and try to survive within a system that most of them never chose. But I think you can reasonably say that uh, there's, there's faults in the system. 
and there's fault in the individuals. And uh, most people, of course, would rather blame the system than say, uh, mommy uh, chose to make money rather than spend time. And, and the reason she's saying now that she regrets it is because when you get older, the money doesn't matter as much and the relationships mean, mean more. They matter more. Like all of the dopamine she got from being that, you know, successful businesswoman, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but that's all gone. That's all gone. And now she's in a situation where, you know, her son is in trouble. There's no grandkids on the horizon. She's facing the last 30 years of her life or 40 years of her life or however long she's got without any renewal. Oh, my God. She she collects these, like, young storybooks that, like, is what she would, like, read to my child. And she just, like, like I have a good relationship with my mom and dad. I call them, like, every day. And, uh, oh, yeah, this oh, I was out and I picked up this little book. Isn't it nice? And it's like I can I can see her like inside of herself just crying like like where's my grandson like I just want to read this to him but she doesn't do that she's just like smiling like oh it's a nice little book hey eh? the, the the boy the horse and the mole or you know little morals and I'm just like you're such a piece of shit that you didn't get your stuff together and you didn't like give her a grandson and like look at this poor lady she just she reads kids' books to herself. Cause you... Right. I just uh, ask you again to keep your name off it. Sorry. Pardon. Sorry. Yeah, it's tragic. All, all the propaganda we swallow that conditions us when we're young. When we get older, all of that propaganda falls away and the truth is revealed. Which is... She would much rather... Like, looking back... She'd, she's in now would say, I'd much rather spend time with children than go to work, right? But when she was younger, she chose to go to work rather than spend time with her son. And trying to warn people of the consequence. Like, this is why people who are over 50 have to be generally silenced, unless they're total propagandists, right? They generally have to be silenced. This is the boomer meme, right? Shut up, boomer. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we, have some, we do have some hard-won wisdom. We do have some hard-won wisdom. And we do want to warn younger people of the mistakes that we've made and try and help people make better decisions. But that goes against propaganda, right? Some people learn by reason. Some people learn by experience. And the people who've learned by experience can't be allowed to bring the reason back to the younger people because that then goes against the destruction of the culture insisted upon by the powers that be. So, yeah, I do. I do. I'm, I'm both sorry for your mother, but also you know, kind of frustrated, right? I mean, yeah, I can, I, I mean, can she had a baby that. in her arms. She was breastfeeding. Like why on earth would you, it's, it's like, like a man who gets drafted for a war, you know, has to kiss his baby goodbye and, and go, go walk away. Right. And if he doesn't go to war, he goes to prison. Right. So either way, he's not going to spend. So, and I don't know why it is that women feel that the dollar is a war that they get drafted for. Like, they just don't have a choice. Well, I've had my time at home. Now I've got to go back to work. It's like, you're not drafted. What are you talking about? Men drafted? Yeah, sympathy, man. Rough. Is it I don't know why wanted... women... I don't know why women view the commandment to work as being drafted. Sorry, you were saying? 
I, I, do they want to be part of a team and not understand how like having children and living a more jet female gender role, uh, make or bring, or if you paid someone for cooking, cleaning, raising your kids or for this or that to, to contribute, like, did I not make under, make you understand how much you were helping by just being? Well, it's pretty simple, right? The state has always wanted to get a hold of toddlers. I mean, the, the, the government always wants to get hold. Like, the younger, the better, right? It's like that old Jesuit saying, give me a child the until am- the age of seven. He's mine for life. Easy. So the state always wants mm-hmm. to get their hands. Well, now they, they obviously can't kick down doors and <laughs> take children away in the style that Plato wanted. But what they can do is is they can just promote women working and then... Women put their kids in government daycares. Ah, look, now we have the children, right? It's, uh, it's a fairly simple equation. Birth window and, uh, I don't know, just like not hitting that. It just doesn't feel like I can hit it. And so I, do, I don't want to settle. Anyway, sorry if I'm, I'm bouncing. No, no, that's, that's I mean, I, I appreciate what you're saying. I really, I really do. But she, I assume, when she said, well, I'm with you, I lose my ambition. I think what she means is like, I want to go make something of myself. Now, the, the, the equation for women used to be, I want to go make something from myself, as in children, right? Mm. And that your legacy is, it's, it's the first novel, the first adult novel I ever wrote was called Revolutions. And it was about a guy who was a revolutionary in uh, Russia, about a generation before the Russian Revolution. And he was torn between, do I pursue political revolution to make a better world or do I get married settle down and make the world better by a couple of happy well-adjusted children that's that's the big question that's the big question right and maybe this uh, young woman that you were interested in uh, she was like well but I've got to go make something of myself as opposed to I'm going to make something from myself babies I'm going to make something of myself I don't have any ambition. Like, it's, it's viewed, you know, what do they call it? Um, you can't, you should, you know, marriage turns women into brood mares, you know, like uh, just breeding machines. And, and, and that's, I mean, it's a chilling indictment of their own mothers, right, that they view mothering or motherhood as, I mean, it's, it's like me describing being a father as being a sperm donor. That's, that's oh, my mm. God. Like, that's horrifying. It, but it tells you how they were raised, right? That their mothers weren't, didn't connect with them, didn't transmit values, virtues, culture, humanity died. to them. Her mom died when she was uh, 10. So she right. um, went into the occult and a few edgy things. Um, I found reconnection with my Christian roots in my mid-20s. Um, and so like a lot of our relationship was based on like is somebody trying to control me or should I do these things because they're a good formula to a good life? And, you know, I don't know. Right. So moving forward, what's the most essential thing you're looking for me in this conversation, looking for from me? Um, Well, I feel basically uh, resolved now to just be alone. I feel as though I missed the boat. Um, with a and what's your age range at the moment? You don't have to give me your exact age, but just yeah. roughly. Uh, I'm 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 around thirty. Then we'll say. Right. Right. Okay. Um, 
just so, so relative to like I mentioned a women at the age of 22, the birth window and stuff. And just I don't feel at my age <clears throat> that I'll be able to attract a woman that I could maintain a wholesome relationship with as to some of the greater concerns on an individual level, uh, level or a societal level to feel like I'm being part of the solution. Um, so I feel more resolved to just dedicate myself more to um, my trade in, in returning to school. I just finished a, a, a university course and intend to keep that up. Um, Wait, so you're giving up on a family in your around the age of 30. I just call you 30, right? So you're giving up, sure. yeah. you're giving up ambition for a family because you're 30. Uh, yeah yeah i yes and i'm curious as to your thoughts like you're you're an idiot you still got time you shouldn't be thinking these things or it's like you know what yeah this is probably the best way to not kid yourself and make use of the time you have left and your story is basically a cautionary tale to the younger men of you guys got to be serious while you can and you know respect yourself and respect women or you know you can have kids for another 60 years right uh doesn't like I guess I I wanted the family like a monogamous relationship where you're married and so and it, it feels like if I can't have that I guess I'm like no is that no, stupid why, why, is... why can't you have that um be, because I feel too old to develop a real meaningful relationship and find something in a day and age where it's mostly like Tinder and Bumble like you don't find like people are like well I, I mean you don't you... look for it on Tinder and Bumble but I mean I was older than you when I got married much older. Um, did, did did you meet your wife at like a nice interaction, like grocery store, or a library, or friend of a friend sort of thing? Um, I met my wife. Uh, uh, she was on my volleyball team. That's that's a beautiful story. So yeah, just it's kind of like it feels like that's not something that it's really like. What volleyball team? Everywhere's locked down. Where do you go to do these things? Where? How do you? How oh, do you listen. The them? lockdown. Yeah, the lockdown is brutal on dating uh, and and relationships. And I mean, I, it's it's horrifying. And uh, I don't know what, uh, I mean, this, this ridiculous hysteria, this ridiculous hysteria is, is I mean, it's, it's like there's lots of studies now about how helpful vitamin D is with regards to COVID. So locking down everyone and keeping them indoors all the time, it's just depriving them of vitamin D. And it's uh, like, oh, come on, right? It's not right. It's not right. No, it just, it just seems to get worse. And in the interim, you know, there's going to be kids this summer. They get out. They still got time. Okay, great. Have a, But I'm going to be even older. And my chances of attracting a younger woman who could have, like, it, you know, kids, uh, no. Uh, it's significantly Yeah, but now, now, she, like, now you can't do it, right? Now, as far as I understand it, I mean, you're, gonna, you're having trouble with income. You're having trouble with stability. You're having trouble with all of that stuff, right? And so right now uh, might not be the ideal time to try and attract a woman, right? Even if there was no lockdown or anything. My, my uh, life, I guess the biggest thing was predicated on the real estate market crashing. So like I worked my whole 20s, saved some money, uh, lost a lot of it. Um, just completely long story, but I still got access to uh, the ability to maybe buy a house, like a down payment. And so I was like, okay, well, if things crash, like Chicago style, 60 to 80%, maybe there's the opportunity for people in my age demographic to buy a house and pick up from the, the rightful losses of boomers and repatriate to living the old ways of our, of our grandparents and maybe try to get this thing back on track. No, um, but they'll always open up the floodgates of immigration to prop up housing prices. And, and I fear you're right. 
you know, so it's... Um, yeah, sadly, they, they can't allow real estate values to crash. Um, I mean, that almost took out the whole terrible system in 07, 08, as you know, so... Okay, so you've got your health issues, you've got your concussion, you're working through that, you've got financial issues, career issues, and so on, right? And, and you know, now could be the time to to prepare for all of that, to prepare for when some return to normalcy is going to occur. And it's not going to be like this forever because, I mean, society simply won't survive, right? And so I think I, if I were in your shoes, I would use this time. So I think there's a couple of things you need to work on. Again, I can't give you any health advice. I'm not going to give you any financial advice, but, you know, working on getting a decent income and all of that. Mm. But I am curious what your relationship is to your historical advocacy for marijuana. Um. Oh, um, well, I would say that I started irresponsibly using cannabis in my teenage years. Um, well, you were dealing too, right? Y- yes, yeah, yeah. So, so just uh, bad, bad situation, wrong place, wrong time. But certainly take responsibility myself for the poor decision. I, I say with youth that uh, cannabis will make you okay with feeling bored. And it's when you're young that you're bored, you should be using the time to develop a new skill. So I didn't practice what I preached. And I think there was a lot of spinning my tires. When I was 18, I started getting migraine headaches that blinded me. And that led to me receiving a quote unquote valid medical license for cannabis. I was working for for about five years as a credit account manager. And so I, um, it was awkward to have somebody in the office who smelled of cannabis and had a legal license. And so I found myself out of that position and I started consulting with uh, like commercial operations that were setting up for like a for-profit industry. And um, so like not, I did one in Ontario and then um, moved out to Alberta, started just working uh, the legal retail stores, built one. No, no, here. so I don't, I don't want a resume, man. Sorry. Sorry. Just, sorry. That's really, um, that's really not like, the point. The point like, is do I think, your resume. Do I think cannabis is like a miracle drug or something? Like I'm not one of those if that's. No, I mean, you've, you've been pushing drugs for good portions of your life, right? I couldn't deny that, yeah. And what's your relationship to that? Oh, like my use? Uh, uh, no, no, uh, no. What's your relationship to the fact that you've been pushing drugs for good portions of your life? I'm sorry, Steph. I, I, do I feel guilty? Like, is that it? or what's... Well, I mean, I just, do you think it was good? Do you think it was neutral? Do you think it was bad? I mean, what's your relationship to it? I think it was bad. I think I think it was bad. I think it took more away from myself than added to, and the things that I. No, but you're to talking is- about you. What about like you? You facilitate. I mean, I know you were a child, but let's be frank. You facilitated the drug use of other children, right? Yeah, my my chaos uh, negatively inf- impacted others. Yeah, I don't know what that means, but I mean, to me, it's you know, you you did make the choice. Yeah. To supply drugs when you were a child, to supply drugs to other children. I think that's simmering deep down in there, and I think this is one of the reasons why it's tough for you to love and be loved. Now, this doesn't mean that you're doomed forever, but I think it's something that you have to wrestle with. I think it's something you have to confront. You know, kids came to you, they were unhappy, and you helped them get drugs. <sighs> I'm not yeah. trying to make you feel bad, but if, no, if the no, feeling no. bad is down there, then it's this is something that's, you know, when someone really starts to love you, if it collides with a negative self-image you have deep down, you're gonna, you, you won't be able to make the connection. Oh, 
there's like a physical feeling when you make certain mental connections and I haven't had this feeling in a very long time. So I thank you very much for what you're saying. I just, it's powerful. It's like, whoa, whoa. And you can have sympathy for yourself. You were part of a system. You had, I think, relatively uncaring parents. And so you can have sympathy, but it's something you have to wrestle with, right? Is it, is like, it like, like pen, men who date men like, who date women, men who date women just because the women are physically attractive, use them for sex and then dump them. That's incredibly harmful to women. And I know we're given all of this, you can sleep around and women are just like men and it's fun, but it's it's just incredibly destructive to your culture, to your society, to a woman's capacity to bond to your own right self-trust. And you know, the men who've slept around and, and dated women for looks and then dumped them. Um, after having sex, that's uh, a lot of wreckage, right? It's a lot of wreckage in the wake. And again, I have sympathy, but it's something that you have to wrestle with if this has been your life, right? And, and you know, as a teenage guy who was dealing drugs and in the punk movement and living alone, I'm sure you had a fair amount of pretty trashy sex, and that's that leaves some wreckage. Men can survive that stuff better than women for biological reasons we don't have to go into here and again i'm not trying to make you feel bad what i'm trying to say is okay something had you come out of your life where you are to when you were dating this 22 year old woman and saying well who do i have to chameleon or morph into so that she'll like me and that means that you don't particularly like something about yourself because then it's like okay how can i how can i fake her into liking me who do i have to pretend to be so that she'll like me and that means that you don't I think have a, a lot of love for yourself in some areas deep down, and this this could be the reason why. Can I ask what your perspective is on the thought of like I feel that like when she initially fell for me, I was one way, and then when we were together, it's like I be like when she fell for me, I was me, and then when we were together, I was trying to be me, and that caused the issues. I don't like. No, so I mean, the reason that we tend to morph in or try and morph into someone else is because there's not a solid commitment, right? So if, if the person is committed, you know, like the, the marriage vows or, you know, whatever, right? If the person's committed to us and says, you know, I really like you for who you are, then we don't have to be anyone other than who we are, which I know is a very simplistic equation. Who we are is constantly changing and all of that. But the reason why men and women chameleon is because there's not a commitment on the part of the other person. They're kind of in and not in. They're there and they're not there. They're there, but they're keeping their options open. And then we get kind of desperate and crazy, right? And, okay, I'll try being this person, I'll try being this person, and, and maybe that will elicit some kind of commitment out of you or whatever it is, right? Well, once you have that commitment, you can just be yourself, right? But in the absence of that commitment, we try to change. Like, you know, if you you got a, you got a ring of 50 keys and you're trying to open a lock, if your first key doesn't open the lock, you just keep trying different keys, and that's us with different personas if we don't get commitment. Um... We had known each other for three months before we had uh, made love, and that was odd for myself or like a while. But I recall like thinking the evening of sort of in, in the bathroom or whatnot, like, I just want this girl to like me. And I, I lately I find myself saying, is this how the women in my young 20s felt like and I made them feel? And is this sure. like karmic retribution? Most likely. 
hence you the know, cautionary. Like, like I mean, look at look at Trump, right? I mean, just take a silly example, right? Look at Trump. Sure. So for you know four or five years, Trump supporters were getting attacked, deplatformed, abused, insulted, ostracized, you name it, right? And what did he do? Not nothing. He's passed. Not really. I, I, right? He barely even. I don't think he even acknowledged it. You know, he just raised two hundred and fifty million dollars to fight this mirage-like election fraud, and is that going to be turned into bail money for the people accused of criminal actions for the Capitol? Right? No, doesn't seem to be right. So Trump is now experiencing what his supporters experienced for many years. So, yes, that does, you know, if we, if we confront our own bad behavior in the past, and this does not mean with self-condemnation, you can do this with great sympathy for yourself, as being propagandized, there's bad actions I did in the past, I have some sympathy for myself, but I still have to acknowledge that it had a negative impact on me, and more importantly, it had a negative impact on others. And being able to come to terms with that, and getting some peace with that is really important, and Things like drugs or other addictions or promiscuity, you name it. I think that a lot of that is just trying to run from an advancing bad conscience. Pardon, an advancing bad conscience? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, listen. It may take us a while. Like propaganda lures us into doing bad things, gives us a bad relationship with ourselves, so we can't pair bond. And that's another way that we... Uh, lose our culture, right? Lose our civilization. So we've all done things in our youth because we lost God, we lost Christianity, we lost religion, we lost morals, we lost wisdom, we lost philosophy, we lost respect for our elders. And many of these things is just taken from us. And so we were tricked, lured, lied into doing some bad things. You were raised in an unempathetic manner. You were not empathized with. In other words, your feelings weren't real enough for other people to take decisive action when you were unhappy, right? So then, when you were a kid and you were unhappy, your parents gave you stuff that distracted you from that. It didn't solve the problem. Problem persists. And when you were 14, unhappy children came to you and what they really needed was a conversation, right? What they really needed was curiosity, empathy, all that, right? But because of how you were raised, and this is where we have sympathy for ourselves, but because of how you were raised, where sadness is dealt with by external means, right? Unhappiness, so go buy something, play a video game, get a new album, get a new haircut, new shoes, new phone. You were like, okay, well, the way that you deal with unhappiness is some external substance, and in this case, it happened to be marijuana, right? Uh, more, more than than cannabis, um, right, right. Yeah. 
And it seems likely that some of those children went on to become drug addicts. I recall one in specific right now. Yeah, some of them may have died. I'm not saying that's on you 100% or anything like that, obviously, right? Of course, right? You're a kid. Right? They're still making their own choices. But, and, and, and I'm not saying this to make you feel bad. What I am saying is that if there is something down in there that you need to confront, I mean, I'm a big fan of therapy. As you know, talk therapy is really, really key. I know that you're, uh, you had a concussion, so if you need money for therapy, let me know. I'm happy to forward you the, 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 the money for therapy. I mean, I think it would be a really, really good thing to do. And maybe I'm completely off the mark. But if there's something down in there that you haven't confronted, and the confrontation doesn't mean, oh, I'm a bad guy, right? It just It's a complex situation that you did end up supplying drugs to your peers when you were a child. I got to think that leaves you with some pretty complex moral questions. And again, I'm not trying to say, oh, you're a bad guy, blah, blah, blah. I don't, that's not how complexity works. But when you say, I have a great relationship with my parents, when you told me, basically, that your parents raised a drug dealer, I have questions. I have questions. Wasn't it their job to know that you were doing something this, you know, kind of destructive? Yeah. I don't know what that change is like, you know, if you see one day your kid's okay and then the next day you think something's off. That's why I say, oh, it was my parents' first time being a parent as much as it was my first time being a kid. Uh, it was my parents' first time being a parent? I don't know what that means. Like, I mean, I get what you mean in terms of time, but... Like, it's like I feel angry when the concept of, like, getting left in a daycare, and it's like, so we can talk about a system, but it's kind of like like mad at my mom like there's a lot of emotions there's like i feel like a kid just crying for his mom and it's like oh so are you just scared and you want your mom yeah or are you mad your mom left yeah that too and um that's where it's like well i don't know i don't think my mom was like well screw you i'm out of here i don't want to be with you i just wonder if it's like Oh, I got bills. And should I be working or should I be with him? Oh, I'll just leave him here a little while. I got to work. You know, we got to, and um, just kind of getting caught up in the 20th century or whatnot. But I don't know if I'm making excuses for my mom or my dad. Well, I don't know either. But that's something that unravels in conversation. But I'll tell you one thing that does bother me about your mom. Your mom is putting a lot of emotional pressure on you to have children, but she's not asking you what the problem is. You know, when she buys these books, these children's books, and tells you how wonderful this are, this is a lot of manipulative emotional pressure, man. It's brutal. 
She says she just likes the book or I look into something too much. Oh, come on. No, yeah. no adult buys children's books without the anticipation of reading them to children, right? Yeah. So she's putting a lot of pressure on you to have children. But she's not sitting there saying, mm, okay, was there anything in my parenting that may have given him... I mean, do, do they know that you dealt drugs when you were a teenager? Uh, my parents know absolutely everything. Yep. Right. Have they criticized themselves at all for producing this kind of dysfunction or at least having some particularly powerful authority over producing this kind of dysfunction? Short answer, yes. They've, what did I do, sort of thing. Well, no, that's that's a rhetorical question. What is their answer? Oh, um, I guess we've never properly had the conversation. Just ask the question. Neither of us has had an answer. Hmm. Right. I I ha I did try to reach out to counseling and therapy and social services uh in February of last year when uh I was I was left by my ex the first time and I found it quite difficult just relative to the you know, do you have coverage and this and that and Well no, I that's my in... offer though. Like if I would strongly suggest you get therapy. I really strongly suggest. I, I mean, I'd, I'd order you two if I could, but you know, it's a free will thing, right? But uh, it, no, just just send me a note, right? Just write to me, send me a note. We'll we'll sort it out. We'll get you. We'll get you. We'll get your therapist paid. Okay. Okay. Um, my GP has 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 been very decent in the interim. In just uh, I go for kind of weekly uh, checkups with him that are extended. But I I think proper therapy and counseling is. And thank you. I'll follow up. Listen, it is not too late. It is not too late. You're listening to this show. You're part of this conversation. You are a magnificent bastard. I just want you to get that. My admiration for you is intense. Your honesty and forthrightness is beautiful. It's not too late. I think you got a couple of old things to wrestle with, which I have and you have and everybody listening to this has. It's it's a human experience. We're raised like animals these days. And it, we we can't be animals because we're humans, right? So have sympathy for yourself. But you know, understand that decisions I made, decisions you made, decisions we've all made when we were younger caused harm. And we can have sympathy for ourselves, and we can get mad at ourselves, we can get mad at our society, we can get mad at the lack of training we got, the lack of empathy we got. You can't raise a child in daycare. You can't raise a child in daycare. I worked in daycare for years, I know. You can keep them out of trouble to some degree. Well, it's just kind of postponing the trouble, so to speak. But you can't, uh, you can't raise a child. You can't morally educate a child in daycare. I mean, if, if we had two parents with 30 kids, we wouldn't sit there and say, well, I bet you each one of those kids is getting great moral instruction in one-on-one time with parents, right? Daycares have 20, 30, sometimes 
kids in them uh, and uh, in a class and maybe one one daycare worker one worker's aide which is sort of my job um okay do you know uh the nancy kubler ross griefs uh the five stages thing but i assume like all pop psychology is total bullshit i could be wrong but i assume it's total bullshit Psycho? and i assume there's no empirical testing behind it or validity i think it's an interesting mental model but um i i would be careful about those stepping stones because okay. uh, i i would just be you know like 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 a lot of these personality tests and stuff like that emt or whatever it is right i mean that stuff is largely crap or like you know emotional intelligence largely crap Okay. I mean, and the reason why is that the the actual rigorous methods within psychology, like IQ, are constantly attacked, right? Whereas the softy, gooey stuff with no empirical evidence is constantly promoted, and it's largely to obscure the hard science of IQ. So, I'm sorry, I don't mean to right immediately dismiss your your thoughts about it, but I would be I would be certainly pretty careful. Like, if there's these five stages of grief, I would like to know. Okay, what's the empirical evidence? What's is there any scientific backing to it? Is there right, or is it just anecdote yeah and you know there's moral grief you know there's grief for things that you've done there's regret there's grief for things that are accidental like someone you love got hit by a bus uh you know there's there's grief for things you have control over there's grief for things you don't have any control over like what twitter does or what youtube does and so to me grief is so complex mixed with voluntary stuff mixed with accidental stuff mixed with guilt mixed with anger at happenstance. It's so complex that to me, may, may reduce, I, hang on, to, to me reducing all of this complexity of grief to five stages, it's like, okay, well, is the five, if you're, if, you're, if you're grieving because you did harm to someone, is that the same as grieving because somebody you love accidentally died? Does it follow the exact same pattern? Of course it doesn't, right? So just trying to put it all in one category just seems to me uh, very reductionist. But sorry, go ahead. That makes sense. Okay, so um, still to um, like denial, depression, anger, fear, acceptance is something that it was based on. What about repeating the cycles on purpose on your own because you don't want to accept whatever it is you need to resolve? So you go back to uh, depression, anger, fear, and then you just keep on going through it because you don't want to accept it. Because if you accept whatever it is, it's over. And like I, I, so it's like a lot of the times I think am I not getting better because like, I want to tell myself, Oh, if I do these things, she'll come back. It'll all be okay. But she won't. And like, is that why I don't do these things? I think I can do, or uh, do I need to get that out of my head? Is, is it? Well, what do you, what did you love about her? I loved her optimism. Okay. What else? Um, things as far as like music, uh, movies, pop culture, video game. You know, we have those those same interests. Whatnot. Oh, you like that too? Um, silly things like oh, you eat. 
peanut butter and bacon sandwiches too no way like little little things that might make the nuance of your character and personality her and i seem to just match up nine out of ten things and on the one out of ten if you might think it's odd or whatnot something you don't like not that you're repulsed but it's kind of like a little nuance because if you were so similar it'd be kind of boring so um never met somebody who was so much alike myself but then also had some uniqueness as well but her optimism didn't include you did it no it didn't so the one part you really needed her to be optimistic about she was not at all optimistic about in fact quite the opposite right and she only said i love you when we had sex that was we'd have romantic periods but no no let's let's get back i mean you said you, but she was not optimistic about her future with you, right? It did not, no, no. Right. And that hurts, man. That That's just, look, being rejected is just painful. It's just painful. Fundamental question you need to ask yourself. Everybody needs to ask themselves about rejection. If I was rejected by a good person, I need to improve morally. If I was rejected by a bad person, I need to improve in who I choose. Right, so it's the only, it's the only, only way it works. It's just it's two sides of one coin. If you are rejected by a good person, it means you need to improve morally. Usually, your relationship with yourself, and that's going to hurt. If you were rejected by a bad person, and a bad person doesn't mean that they're evil. It just means that they didn't have good reasons, like neurotic or insecure, or they don't trust their own happiness. It could be like a number of fairly aesthetic negatives, but nonetheless means that they couldn't commit, right? So if you're rejected by someone who couldn't commit to you because moral flaws within you, you need to improve. And if you were rejected by someone, if you were rejected by someone for good reasons, you need to become a better reason. If you were rejected by someone for bad reasons, then you need to be better at choosing people. That's the uh, kind of simplicity reading... and clarity I think that philosophy is, is so helpful with, with, with regards to this stuff. So did CS... she reject you for reasonable reasons, good reasons, decent reasons? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. And why did she reject you then? Did she reject you for, and then I guess she rejected you for for bad reasons, in other words, for, for reasons that didn't make sense or weren't valid? I guess if I had to sum it up, it's like grass is greener on the other side. Like was her thing. So she thought she could do better. That's what I, that's what I think. Yeah. Like it was never fully confirmed, but it's kind of like, okay, okay well, if I'm could not she, good enough to choose. Could she do better? Can I, she do I better? Don't, I don't think so. No. So sell me on you as a provider. Um, for the last 12 years of my life, I've always been able to bring in an income and maintain whatever my day-to-day responsibilities are. And I find that were I to pursue the goals of wanting to have a family, that my natural abilities of being able to provide would just be heightened. Um, my, I come from a family that, you know, not to say we're affluent, but like we, I, I have the ability to pursue goals as far as like getting a property, both combined with how I worked throughout my twenties and built up some funds. 
and then my family to um, just pursue those goals alongside. And what are the odds, do you think, from a female perspective, right? What are the odds that you would end up parenting a child who would end up as dysfunctional as you were as a teenager? Very likely. Very definitely, definitely stacked against myself. Yeah. Right. You understand that's a calculation, right? Yes. I, at, at the end, I was trying to figure out I, because like, I, I see this whole second wave feminism thing is like, there are women who don't need exceptions in society, don't need handicaps and in industries. They're just capable. Um, the other side of the coin. Okay. That's not okay. But like, the ones who want to work and can, yeah, go for it. Absolutely. Wait, I no, always. No. I'm sorry, sorry. You, you're trying to drag me off into something else sorry. here. Okay, let's sorry. go back. Let's go back to her decision matrix. Okay. Does she want to raise a child with a man? The child's going to become a mohawk, punk chasing, drug dealing, moving out at the age of 14. Well, it's not me anymore. No, but you you said that the odds were fairly high that you would end up raising a child who would do that, if I understood what you said correctly. Yes, yeah, I just, I thought, like, I'm saying okay, I'd that be aware what she of want? that. Is that what she wants? Okay. Okay. No. So that's her decision. Remember, women, women look down the tunnel of time. Women look decades into the future. Men look to this weekend if we're lucky, right? Women look decades down the road. Oh. Uh... Okay, well, I was just going to be like, yeah, but I'm aware of that, so I'll work hard to make sure it's not the problem. And you're saying she's more like, there's a very high chance that's the problem. I'm out of here. Well, it's fine, but what's what's the plan? How are you going to ensure that doesn't happen? You're very close and respect and love the parents who raised you, mm-hmm. so you're going to take them as a template, which is most likely going to produce you. Well, I, I, I mean, I was encouraging one of us staying at home. Like that's, like I'm sorry, that's I don't want to get. No, that's not what I'm saying. That's what okay. I'm saying. What I'm saying right. is that your girlfriend looked at your relationship with your parents, and you say, "I'm close to my parents. I talk to them every day. I love them," and they produced you, right? Which means you're going to take their parenting as the template, and most likely, you're going to produce another you. From her perspective. Now, you can say, well, yes, but I'm going to make sure I don't produce another me. But she's, you know, that's, that's like someone saying, yes, but I'm going to make sure I make a lot of money. Someone's going to say at some point, uh, can I see a practical plan for that? Or is this just something you're saying? Can I see this actually in motion? Well, wouldn't any woman be fair to take that position then? Yeah. So then... I'm kind of screwed. I did it to myself, you know, but... Uh... No, you're not screwed at all. But if you continue to unqualifiedly respect and praise the parents who raised a youthful drug dealer, then women are going to be bloody concerned, and they're right to be. Now, if yeah. you say, yeah, there's some great things my parents did, but man, oh man. You know, I I got engaged in criminal activity as a teenager, and I bailed out of the house when I was 14. And that was messed up. 
I got issues with that and I'm working on them and here's what I'm doing to make sure I never ever repeat the mistakes that they made that produced that. That this makes sense. Praise of the past is a commitment to the future. Whoever, if you if you don't have any issues with your parents, they're they're going to completely dominate how you raise your children. And did you tell your ex that your mom was buying all these children's books? No, I didn't. Okay. Is that like should I have or? Well, I'll tell you this: if she got a sense of that, or if she knew, then she'd be like, "Okay, so." And this ties into the call I had on Friday, right? She's going to sit there and say, hmm, okay. So my mother-in-law is going to be all over us when we have kids. And if my husband thinks his mom is kind of perfect and his mom is over-raising our kids, the odds of producing my husband's childhood again and my own child are pretty bloody high. That also makes a lot of sense. Damn it. I've said it a million times, man. Excuses of promises of repetition. If you excuse your parents' behavior, and listen, you've listened to the show for a while, right? Yes. How many people have I had on who were teenage drug dealers? You know what? Call it strange. I've only probably heard about 20, 30 shows, Steph. And I can't say... Well, I can tell you, I can't remember one. You had it bad, man. You had it bad. I I remember this one time at a bus stop. She was 14. And I confirmed it. And I remember having a feeling in my stomach. Like, yeah, this is is past the line, man. And I I didn't. I I, I didn't do anything. You didn't sell the drugs. No, I sold. No, I sold the drugs. I sold the drugs, and I moved on. I didn't sell to her again, and I think that was me being like, "Oh well," but just. And you were also bloody lucky, man. I mean, or unlucky. I don't know whether, but you could easily have been nabbed. You could have got involved with the wrong criminal elements. You could have been nabbed by the police. Your parents could have been dragged into the legal mess. It could have been really, really bad. I used to make runs between London, Ontario, and Montreal. And on my last run, when I turned 18, I said, this is it. I'm done. And then I straightened up a bit. But Right. So when it was negative consequences for you, you were able to stop. And it was negative consequences to the other kids. You weren't, right? But that's an empathy problem, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So you had it bad, man. You had it really, really bad. And you can call it degeneracy. I suppose that gives it a kind of cool air to it, but it's just trauma. It's just lack of empathy. It's a brokenness. It's a lack of love, lack of connection. You know, happy love children, they're not out 
selling drugs to kids. They're not bailing at a home when they're 14. I'm afraid to get better because then like someone comes back and I could lose somebody again. Right. It's like I cut yeah. off all no, of my course. friends. You've been rejected. You've been rejected and it hurts. But what about all the people you rejected? What about all the women you rejected? How many women have you slept with? 96. Right. Now, of those 96 women, how many would have liked to have not had sexuality cheapened by being used, but actually have a relationship? I, I would think a very high majority, 80%. Right. So almost 80 women you have reject, you've used and then rejected, right? Yeah. And you're crying to me about being rejected? I mean, you've been brutal on women. Now, they have agency. I get all of that. But, I used but to tell myself... You understand, could... it's, it's kind of it's tough to hear you being upset about being rejected when you've rejected over 80 women. Sorry, go ahead. Um, no, I, I see the connection you're making. It does seem petty. Um, I use. I no, used listen. To... No, your no. This is your your rejection is really important. I'm not trying to say your rejection doesn't matter. Your rejection, the pain you're going through, is really important. Well, so it's not suck it up because you did it to someone no. else. God, okay. No. No. Oh, okay. That's no. It's about having empathy for the women you rejected. That they don't they even want to talk to you're me going anymore. Through. No, I know they they went through what you're going through. You did that to them. What this woman did to you, you did to them. What you going through times 80. It means have empathy for them. Because it hurts you and it hurt them. Now, not all equally. I'm sure some of them were more flyby and just wasn't as involved in all of that. But certainly some, the rejection that you're feeling, you inflicted on others. Now, that doesn't mean you should have been with them. It doesn't mean you should have stayed with them. I'm just talking about a basic. You did this to others. And it sucks. It sucks. It hurts, right? It, it hurts, but I don't think I have a reason to, like, I'm not the, vi like, I'm not the victim. Or I don't know. Like, I did these things. So what? That's No, see, you're trying to frame it into perpetrator victim again. Okay. Yeah. You now know the pain of rejection at a very deep level, right? Yes. Which you didn't experience before, I don't think. Right? You slept with and then kind of dumped 80 women, right? Yes. And I don't think you processed the feelings they were experiencing in the way that you're experiencing your feelings, right? Yes. That's important. You've done some harm. And listen, we all have. I'm not trying to isolate you or make you feel like a bad guy or anything like that. 
you did some harm to others. And they did some harm to you. But you now, now the, the, the suffering is is an opportunity for empathy, right? I feel and the like way that bridge. we, yeah. yeah, the the way that we avoid allowing suffering to give us empathy is we talk about victimhood, or we blame the other person. Like this is a chance for you to connect with women because what what's the future going to be? The future is going to be that you need to connect to a woman, right? Now, you can use this experience of being rejected to connect with the women, the 80 women that you yourself rejected, and understand that they felt, to some degree or another, what you're feeling. And that's empathy, right? And I don't think you experienced that when you rejected them. But suffering is... Like, we either get empathy from our parents, like they empathize with us and, and they're curious about our feelings and they, right? That's one way to get it. And I think, it seems to me, the only other way to get it is through suffering. We suffer. We make the connection that others suffer. And that way we treat other people better, right? If you genuinely connect your own suffering to the suffering you inflicted on the 80 women, you won't inflict that suffering again, will you? I don't I don't believe so. Oh, I bloody well hope not, because that would just that, be sadism, and I don't think you're a sadist, right? But why, why do I feel like I need to wall myself off from everyone? Because empathy is painful. But it's the only way we can love and be loved. It's like saying, why do I want to sit on the couch and eat Cheetos? Because that's more fun than going to exercise, but it's something we've got to do to stay healthy, right? And you are, see, you are already, you have been already walled off from people. I mean, you, you can't take money and hand over a drug to a 14-year-old girl if you have empathy for her. And again, I'm not blaming you, right? I mean, you were a kid and you were raised in some ways. I mean, you, you, empathy was not developed in, in the way that it should be or in, in, enough or deeply enough, I think, in my opinion, right? But you have enough empathy for yourself to have a conversation like this, which again, is magnificent. You should be enormously proud. It's a massive step forward. But you have been walled off from people. I think. Which is why you've gone through nearly 100 women. Thank you for connecting these things. You are welcome, man. And you've got a big heart in there, man. You've got a big heart, a lot of sensitivity.
And it may, excuse me, it may well be worth having a conversation with your parents about what happened as a kid. Why did your mom go back to work? What does she regret now? What does she wish she had done differently? Why were you in daycare? Look, if a woman has to work, at least at least move to where there are grandparents or, or relatives or someone who could take care of the child who's in the family, right? We um, we did, um, but we, we had dysfunction in our family. Not Nothing too extreme, but just kind of like most families have a, oh yeah, this grandpa doesn't, you know, this or that. Like uh, my, my, my grandfather was abusive physically to my grandmother, like a, a very old 1930s or what like not but just she wasn't beat every was night your mother's of, father uh my mother's uh my my mother's mother so he was just no uh, no but i mean so your mother's father was uh, father. physically abusive yeah okay yeah, so he probably was, to her too right uh no actually uh, my grandmother took everything but she witnessed it yeah uh, yes yeah my grandmother embodied very much uh like stay together for the kids sort of thing. Hmm. But your grandmother didn't have the wisdom to choose a nonviolent man. No, he's um he's he's not a he's not a good person. He's uh Right. Might be worth having a conversation with your mother about her childhood. Because it would seem to me that for your mother, the equation is empathy gets the shit beaten out of you. In other words, your grandmother empathized with the needs of the children for an intact family, and that caused her to be a punching bag for her husband. Empathy could almost get you killed. Shit. Par pardon, pardon. I'm so sorry, Steph. No, no, so don't sorry. worry. Don't I don't care about the swearing. I don't care about the swearing. Just don't worry about that. Just what do you feel there? That's I I just feel the connection. I I I I, I think I'm just starting I don't want to say I get it, but I do think I I do at a at a like I'm gonna be thinking about this for another few days. It's a that yeah. That. There's a reason I'm so good at the wiring tasks on in Among Us, sorry, that's a complete <laughs> geek reference, right? But no, these connections, right? For your mother growing up, where the mother took on the obligation to keep the family together at every cost, empathizing with the children, got her beaten up on a regular basis. What's her relationship to empathy? It's very dangerous, I would assume. I don't know. So where it's almost it like she was so almost by not empathizing with you in a sense she was almost keeping a predator away. Sorry, go ahead. Well, it's like I it's like it's like I feel anger or something. It's like so it's like, oh you blah 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 to my grandpa, you do this and that. So you instill these mental issues in my grandma and then my mom, and then it happens to me. And then I'm thinking like, well, my grandpa like is is a human being, or at least I would hope he's a better man at one time than another, almost like you know, Darth Vader like goes to the dark side. So it's like what did you just get hurt by having to work so much to provide? So you got colder and like, 
I don't know. So then what do Okay, who, so, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. Listen, listen. You have a habit, which is completely understandable, of empathizing with everyone but yourself. Okay, I need you, I think. The future needs you. Your future children need you. Your future wife needs you. Forget about what happened to other people when they were children. You've got to empathize with yourself. Otherwise, empathizing with others is a distraction from what you need to do. It just empathize with yourself. with the suffering you experience as a child. Because if you start leaping up the family tree and trying to empathize with everyone else, who gets rejected again? Oh, that scares me so much to do what you're saying. I know, I know, I know. And you want to take me on that ride too. I'm coming back to you. You're the person that's, I'm not talking to your grandfather, I'm not talking to your mother, I'm talking to you. You're the person I care about. Okay? You're the person. You and you alone is my sole focus in this conversation. Now, other people can be useful, but only so far as they drop breadsticks for you or breadcrumbs for you to find your way back to yourself. Okay? It's you that matters. There's got to be something else going on because as I seek your help and try to tell you, it's like I'm still trying to be like, yeah, but... This thing with my grandpa or this thing, no, I'm going to focus on yeah. you. No, 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 yeah. please don't do that. That's the thing that could fix all yeah, this. Yeah, I get scares it. scares the absolute, sh- you know, whatever out of me. No, it scares the shit out of your parents. It's not, you want it. You desperately need it. You need this empathy with yourself so that you can love, so you can bond, so you can regret, so you can heal, so you can move forward. But your parents, like once you connect this empathy with yourself, you are going to get mad at your parents. Now, some of that anger will be just and some of it will be a reaction. It doesn't really matter because just you can feel it, right? But society doesn't want you to empathize with yourself. Your parents don't want you to empathize with yourself. Your teachers don't want you to empathize with yourself. The government doesn't want you to empathize with yourself. The entire power structure that we live under, both personal, social, legal, political, Most of it is founded on a lack of self-empathy, basic empathy. If we had this basic empathy, understand, we wouldn't have the system that we have at all. We wouldn't have anything close to it. It's like the only way that slavery could exist was a lack of empathy to the slaves. Once people started to have empathy for the slaves, the entire system came down. And we got something morally infinitely better in its place. Um, Of course, you have resistance to empathy with yourself. That's how we're programmed, but you need it. You want it yourself, for yourself. You don't have a messed up, ambivalent relationship. I'm personally scared of empathy with myself. It's like, no, 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 no. It's like if you beat a dog... Every time the dog goes for a drink, the dog can sit there and say, I'm terrified of drinking. No, you want to drink. You want to have empathy with yourself. You've just been punished for it. But I think the time for punishment is past. If you'd had genuine empathy for yourself as a child, you would have raised unholy hell 
in the daycare until your mother came home. You would have clung to her, never let her go, never be detached, run back out to the car, cried all day, caused fights, got yourself kicked out. You understand, if you had had relentless empathy for yourself as a child, you would have been massively inconvenient to your mother until you got what you wanted, which was her, right? But you would have been punished for that. Having empathy for yourself would have resulted in punishment. And then the fear of abandonment kicks in and boom, now you're 30, right? And now to keep a woman, who do I have to be? This goes back to you at one. Who do I have to be so that mommy doesn't leave me in a daycare? And now, who do I have to be so that my girlfriend doesn't leave me? Oh. Yeah. Clearly, you being you wasn't enough when you were one. I'm sad to say it should have been. It should have been. But being yourself is not enough for a woman, for a mother, for a girlfriend. It should be. Someone went to rob me two weeks ago. I was just out getting something on a bus. And they ran up to me. They looked me in the eyes. And I don't think I'm a tough guy or anything like that. But they were about six feet away. And I had a look in my eyes, and then they ran off. It's not a fun feeling just going through something. But it's like when you're when you're pushed, you know, it's 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 not fun. And I I, I miss my ex in a sense that when things were happening in society, it felt like I had a refuge, somebody that I could always be myself and and calm things down with. And I haven't had. Like, maybe it's not even the love thing, but she was, like, my best friend. And I just haven't had that to the point that, like, I just keep on feeling more tense. Um, right. And and it is a cliche, and I'm sorry to be, like, sound like some ridiculous Hallmark card. But if you enjoy your own company, and if, in a sense, you are your own best friend, you have good relationships with all the parts of yourself, then you will get and keep a best friend. But if you self-reject, you will end up being rejected by others. But it's hard to self-accept when you felt rejected as a toddler when mommy dropped you off at the age of a year when you were probably just learning how to walk and unfortunately you know a year is when the real moral instruction kicks in because children begin their moral reasoning at about 14 to 16 months they develop empathy so you unfortunately were put into daycare at a time when your moral reasoning was most in need of love, care, connection, and contact. And so the fact that you ended up being put in daycare and ended up as an amoral teenager, well, yeah, 
It's like it's like wondering why you didn't speak Japanese when you were never put into any education regarding Japanese. What what about my first memory in the daycare? I recall crawling around and no one was there. No one no other kids, no daycare attendant. The sun's sure. coming in, but I'm not afraid. Right. I'm not like where are people or where's my mom? I'm just there. Like Right. Because you'd given up. You'd given up expecting. You had reached the stage of grief they call acceptance. Which meant a lot of stuff had happened before. And there is a lot of isolation in daycare, particularly for toddlers. You got one daycare worker, you got six babies or six toddlers. They're going to soil themselves once an hour. Got to spend 10 minutes. That's your whole time is just spent changing diapers. So there's a lot of solitude for toddlers in daycare. I really want to ask my mom what the first time I was dropped off at daycare was like. Like if I was like thrashing around or if I was. Thrashing around would be a good sign. Not thrashing around and like, I just to give you a tiny example. Like, so when I remember sitting in my apartment, what we called a flat in London, had a nice view actually of the city. I remember sitting the day that we moved or I was moved from England to Canada. I very clearly remember looking out the window and not caring at all that I was leaving my friends, my school, my neighborhood, basically where I had grown up. I'd no, didn't care. No grief, no sorrow, no goodbye to friends, no nothing, right? Just, no, going to someplace new. Because I'd given up. No one asked me, no one consulted, no one cared what my thoughts or opinions were. We're going to Canada. That's why when people say I'm an immigrant, it's like, you got to be kidding me. I like Canada, don't get me wrong. I like Canada. But I remember clearly. Now, like, not caring, not caring. Just get on the plane, come say someplace new. Now, for you, if you were dropped off and you were just fine to go, that's indication that the lack of bonding that made the drop-off at the daycare possible had been occurring for quite some time. And if your mother, because of her own mother, made the association that empathy with children is very dangerous, then she would have shied away from that connection, probably, perhaps. And me thinking it's just like, oh, well, got to go to work, got to make some money and, you know, is what, like giving my mom an excuse or something like. So here's the thing. Empathy with the self is time dependent. So empathy with the self is important. So you don't want to go back to when you were one with the judgment of you at 30. And the, well, there was feminism and there was propaganda and there was this and make money and blah, blah, blah. Right. And there was my mother with her mother and uh, my my violent grandfather. And like, you got to, self-empathy is, I'm one, I'm being dropped off to daycare. I don't have any clue what's going on. What do I feel? Now, if you try and jam all these adult judgments in, that's, you do all of that stuff to avoid the basic empathy with yourself at one being dropped off at a daycare. You don't know what the hell's going on. You're just being handed over to strangers in a strange environment and you don't know what the hell is going on. And frankly, you don't even know if your mom's coming back. 
and you're alone, as you remember that memory of being alone. Yeah, I don't, I don't, actually, I recall getting babysat a lot throughout my eight, like when I was like, uh, before I was 13, I guess, and staying on my own. And um, I never had any issues with my babysitters, like, oh, I hated them. Did like, your oh, parents, okay, you tell me an example where your parents were like, oh, I really miss spending time together, let's go someplace, just us and, and reconnect, or like, give me an example of where your parents, when you were a kid expressed genuine desire for your company because what i'm hearing is well you were in daycare and then you had a lot of babysitters and then you got video games and it's like holy shit can you give me an example of when they really sought out your company it feels like it was just around the holidays kind of like that like like we'd go for a, a carriage ride or something but i can't say that like we would do wholesome activities like that every two months or so uh or month but you know, the holidays, like my parents would we would have a meal, all family members do a little activity like an Easter egg hunt or some of these traditions that. Yeah. And that's stuff to do. And there's nothing wrong with that. But in terms of just your company, eyeball to eyeball conversation, your company, not have an Easter hunt with the kids. I can't say like something like, oh, my dad and I used to always go hunting together. Like we didn't. Yeah, no, we didn't have something like that. So, come on, man. If your parents don't enjoy your company, what's your expectation of being loved by a stranger? I'm not fully making this connection. I'm some I'm somewhat like is it is that why I try to reach so many strangers to find okay, love? Okay, do, do 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 you have Yeah, I mean, do you do you have the experience that your parents really enjoy your company? No. No. Okay. So if your own parents don't really enjoy your company, how is someone supposed to love you? I mean, your parents chose to have you. They chose to become parents. They didn't really seem to enjoy your company. How the hell is a stranger supposed to learn to like you if your parents don't even seem to like you very much? It feels like that's why I got so hung up when I found this girl and it was like, oh, I like you for two years, right. at least for a period. Or Right. Now, listen, you and I have been talking for a while and we'll, we'll end up soon. I really appreciate the length of the conversation, the depth of the conversation. So here's the thing, man. <sighs> Do you get the sense that I really care about you with this conversation? I don't know. I, I, All right. I, tell me, tell I, me, tell me, tell me what's missing for you uh, in your mind or in your heart. I, I just feel kind of cold, like that people should just care about themselves because what does it really matter? All you have is yourself at the end of the day. So, I, like, I think you care in the sense that, like, you wish me good and, uh, you know, but uh, I, I, and I and I think all the guests on your show are, are great and whatnot. I don't think like, oh, we're just a guest or whatnot, but it's like. I'm not your friend or anything like it's you, is that petty of me is that from I don't know I'm just hurt and I don't want to let people in it's not like I think people are shit but it's just like well you got to take care of yourself at the end of the day don't you 
Are you taking care of yourself, though? I don't think you are. No. I because we are, we are not solitary creatures. We are tribal animals. We're social animals. We're dogs, not cats, right? And you say, at the end of the day, you're alone. That's what you said, right? At the end of the day, it's just you, right? Yes. Well, that's what they call a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. Because that has what's happened, right? Now you are alone. Because people can only hammer at the door of your house for so long before they move on, right? If nobody's answering. I miss those people. I wish I had. And they miss you the too. Door. You have they, a lot to offer. You have a lot I've, to offer people. I've tried, and it feels like they're kind of strained from the tension of just somebody calamitous like me. And I'm just kind of like, yeah, I get it. It's like I don't want to make new friends because I'm just afraid of like doing it again, and so that's right. why I guess. I've... So you get, you get, you get, you will get in a moment. You sitting down? That you've not left that daycare floor. Of being alone and being okay with it. That's life, man. That's fate. That's humanity. That's it. That's all you get. Alone and okay with it. People are danger. People are destabilization. People will be unhappiness for you. You can end up alone anyway. I mean, that is what they call a classic self-fulfilling prophecy, right? And I'm saying it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. You have a big heart. You have a great mind. You have great insight. You make great connections. But I think for you, being with people is kind of like holding your breath underwater. It's cool. You get to see some cool fish. You got to get back to the air of solitude, right? And uh, yeah. as an only child without parents who enjoyed your company, it's hard to figure out the value that you bring to the world, right? So you try to bring value to the world by bringing drugs, bringing money, being someone else, being someone different. Uh, it's the me too. Like, who, who do you have to be in addition, or what do you have to bring in addition to yourself to have value to people? Well, you should, of course, bring value to your parents just by being yourself, and then you don't need to bring a whole bunch of other stuff. But if you don't, it's like, okay, that's what you said at the beginning of the conversation. Me, just me, rejected, ostracized, bullied, teased, mocked. Me plus drugs, ah. Oh. Now, people find value in me, right? 96 women, probably a pretty good-looking guy. Me plus looks. Me plus a mohawk. Me plus independence. Me plus a house I'm living at the age of 14 with no parents around. People can have wild parties. Me plus... Enabling wild parties. That's how I bring value. But what if it's but see, with, with someone else, it's just you. And if that's not enough, nothing else is ever going to be enough in the long run, if that makes sense. It does. 
I don't know if I need to get to work or take a break. Well, you know, I would suggest conversations with your parents. Good. Conversations with uh, a therapist. Good. And um, empathy with yourself. Excellent. Thank you, Stefan. You are welcome, my friend. Listen, I know it's a tough time for you financially. Will you promise? Go look for a therapist. If you need some money, if if you need to pay a therapist, will you promise to get in touch? Yes. Yes, I see my doctor on Tuesday. I'll follow up. Fantastic. And I really, really appreciate it. You are, you are a great human being, man. It's been a, I don't stay on this calls this long with just about everybody, so you've been fantastic. I am honored. I am honored by the frankness and openness you've brought to this discussion. You are a massively valuable human being, and I hope that you do become a dad, man. You work through this stuff, you're going to be beyond magnificent. I hope so. I know so. I know so. All right. Will you stay in touch either way? Yeah. Um. Thank you so much for your commentary. Wait, wait. How are you feeling? What are you feeling now at the end here? How are you doing? <laughs> we got some connection here. What are you feeling? I just, I just want to be a daddy so bad. Steph, you don't. I think you do understand. I think. Oh, I do. I had the same feeling, man. It took us forever. It's, it's terrifying. And it started around 25. And it's just like. I just had a feeling like he or she is coming and I got to get ready and it's just going to be the greatest thing in my life. And like, I just want to meet him or her so bad and to just hold him. And it's just frustrating. I thought, I thought this was it. I really thought this was it. And a part of it, I apologize to her. I said, I'm sorry that I fell in love with the possibility of the idea of our kids before I fell in love with you. <sighs> right. Listen, it will work out. It will sort out. And I really, really respect you for this conversation. It's a beautiful thing you've given to the world as well. All right. Uh, just thank, thanks for you. I miss you on YouTube. I, th that was my favorite. Just seeing you with the blue screen behind and calm. I, I just, it's, just yeah, I'm still around. Happened. I'm still around. Freedomain.com forward slash connect. Tons of do places do, still. Do you do BitChute? I'm seeing that as more I of do. a... Okay. I do. A BitChute yeah. library, uh, Brighteon, um, Rumble, lots of places. So, yeah, you can, you can, you can stay, stay with me. All right. Well, thanks, man. I really, really appreciate your time. I appreciate everyone's support of this show, freedomain.com forward slash donate to help out and um, have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful afternoon. Lots of love from up here. I'll talk to you soon.